20 years ago, something happened in our country. We simply refer to it as 9-11. It changed how we view the world. And as a result, we better understood what had to be done in order to protect. Today I want to share with you how 16 years ago, almost at this exact same time, something happened within our church that actually changed how we view the world and helped us understand more than ever before what must be done to risk. Let me share the story. It was August the 29th, 2005, that what had been a Category 5 hurricane that was spinning in the Gulf of Mexico actually made landfall along the Louisiana-Mississippi coast, Hurricane Katrina. New Orleans experienced a great deal of flooding. A lot of attention was given there, but that was primarily because the levees broke. That's why the flooding occurred. The brunt of the storm really was absorbed more by the Mississippi coast. Two days after landfall, I was there. I left here, traveled there, met a friend who pastored a church in Mississippi, and together we really felt like God wanted us to ask the question, what does he want our churches to do in what has just happened? Long Beach, Mississippi was a site that I was unprepared for. Everything along the coast there was just absolutely leveled. And when I say leveled, you, I don't know how to paint the picture for you of just those giant southern trees, right? Uh, some of you perhaps live in neighborhoods that have been around for a while, and so you just have those giant trees that, that cover the neighborhood, and you just have to imagine every tree on the ground. Not a tree here, a tree there. I, I'm every single tree giant on the ground to the point that people were blocked in their homes. They were blocked in their neighborhoods. You, you could not get through. After some conversations with the people there in Long Beach on that day, I quickly returned pretty sure of the mission that God was calling us to. At that time, our student pastor was also a military guy. And Carrie had quite an understanding of deployment. And he began to put those skills together and literally within hours, um, we, had, we had seen the effort. We, we gained five fifth wheels that people within Heart of Life, some of them weren't even able to, to go and help, but they said, yes, you can, you can use the fifth wheel. And so we, we moved five fifth wheels to the area, set them up so that teams of people could then move in and out. Some people could go for a few days. Some people could go for a week. There were some who were able to go for multiple weeks. And in those first weeks... With chainsaws and four-wheelers and, you know, huge tow chains, we cleared those giant trees out of a neighborhood there in order to free people to be able to function again. It gave us the opportunity to visit with them, to encourage them, and to share the hope of Jesus. That was 2005. This is the hard hat that that team of people gave to me when 
we completed our part of the project there. We called it Project Noah. It was about a flood, and, and they, they've signed this hard hat. I, I, I will never forget that experience. And so much of the reason that I'll never forget it is because out of that experience, God pushed me forward. And in turn, he pushed the church forward in a willingness to go and risk for the good news of Jesus. Those efforts continued along the Gulf Coast by the next summer, we had um, gathered a large group of students who wanted to go be a part of the mission work there. We, we, we made a trip to New Orleans. I, I remember we actually stayed in the Salvation Army in downtown New Orleans. That's not a place most people are looking for reservations. We stayed in the Salvation Army in downtown New Orleans, and we were a part of cleaning out homes in the Ninth Ward that had been flooded. So you had to just gut those homes in order for crews then to come in and to be able to help people rebuild their house. It was this beautiful picture of students going and risking. But something happened with me on my way down to meet those students in New Orleans. I received a phone call. Still remember where I was at on the interstate when the phone call came through and I found myself in a conversation with a gentleman who was a part of a small group of people who were about to close the doors of a church in Peculiar. And he simply asked the question to me, do you think Heart of Life would be willing to take what, what is left there, to take the facility that is left there and to start something in that area? They gave us the property. And the first campus of Heart of Life was born. Peculiar. 2006. About that same time, one of our men, Kevin Jennings, actually had approached me about something that God was doing in his heart. It was a, a desire to explore a possible mission connection in Africa. It really, his attention was more towards South Africa, but he felt like God was stirring something there. He was willing to, to be a part of leading in that effort. And so we started to pray. We started to search. We started to make connections. And God, through a series of events, actually connected us through Kansas City to a little country in West Africa called Togo. Kevin, myself, and three other men took our first vision trip there in 2007, and we're still there today, like literally still there today. You prayed for that team a few minutes ago. In that same time frame, we received another call. This time it was a call from the south uh, another offer of a church that had struggled to the point that they were getting ready to close their doors. They had heard what was taking place in Peculiar, and their question was, hey, would Heart of Life consider doing that here? I'm going to narrow down the story for you and tell you that we ended up taking that piece of property. They gave it to us, and we sold it. And the, and the proceeds that came from the sale of that property, we were able to renovate another building that someone else gave us at the same time. And as a result of all that, the Adrian campus was born. That was 2008. The next year, a group of Heart of Life folks had on their heart this, this desire to, hey, let's go the other direction and a, a desire to serve in an orphanage in China. It didn't happen. 
It didn't happen because the H1N1 flu was, was flying like crazy. Remember that? Some of you can remember that whole time frame. The borders were shut down. We were unable to go and serve in China. But our plan was to go through Taiwan to get there. And so when we began to pivot, because we couldn't get to the destination, uh, one of our men, Mike Cook, suggested, hey, how about we spend the entire time in Taiwan? He had some connections there from, from, from business, and now he had already begun to pray for those connections and how to, to point them toward Jesus. We went to Taiwan. We stayed the whole time. A relationship was born. And Project Nick was born. Some 12 children were adopted into families out of that first orphanage that we connected to in Taiwan. And after the laws of adoption changed in the world so that we weren't able to do what we had been doing after a while, again, Project Nick pivoted and began to look toward, hey, can we become a part of seeing shelters built in different difficult places in the world where orphans can find a place to be cared for, to be loved? And today, Project Nick supports six shelters in five countries it began in 2009. Now, I could go on and on, but I want you to, I, I at least wanted you to, to get a taste of where some of this started. 2005, it was Katrina. 2006, it was Peculiar. 2007, it was Togo. 2008, it was Adrian. 2009, it was Taiwan. And I tell you that because every once in a while, somebody will ask me the question, Jeff, why does Heart of Life like, get involved in so many ministries? And usually I can read the way the question's coming across. What it really means is, wouldn't it be simpler to do less? Wouldn't it be simpler to be a part of less? And I'm usually a nice about it, at least usually. But I know when they ask me that question, they don't really understand the mission to which God has called his church. Do you remember what we learned in the very first chapter of Acts? Very first chapter, these are the commissioning words that Jesus gave us. Acts chapter 1, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And what I don't think people understand is that was not an invitation to consider getting involved in God's mission when you can work it into your busy life. This was the result of choosing life with Jesus. When every aspect of your life falls under now this ultimate mission, whatever you're doing, this is your mission. I keep this in my office because it reminds me of some of the truths that I began to learn when God first walked us down this road. And here is one of the first. Keep moving forward with God on his mission to seek and to save. And you say, well, yeah, I, I know that. No, no. No, I want, you to, I want you to hear it today. Keep moving forward with God on his mission to seek and to save. Keep moving forward. Jesus said the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, right? I love that. That's one of my, I love that phrase from him. Jesus is not on a search and destroy mission. He, he's on a search and save mission. This is our God on mission. And I want you to see how clear this rings, not only in everything we've studied in Acts up till now, but, but today, where we've been reading this last week, check out what the scripture says, Acts chapter 13. Let's start with verse one. I'm gonna pause on one and then I'll give you some more. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, 
who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. Now let's stop there. What a collection of people. What a collection of individuals, all right? Now we already know Saul. We know Saul's incredible story. He goes from fighting against the church to fighting for it. He goes from persecuting it to now he's spreading the news of Jesus. But I love this little description of this dude, Manan, who grew, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Now, if you were here last week, I gave you a little bit of story on the whole Herod, right, issue. We see three of them when when we're reading the New Testament. Let's just say the Herods are not good people. They're not. If you are of the Herodian clan, you will probably not be for very long because they don't just kill other people, they kill each other. I mean, just a ruthless bunch of people. The Herod that's being referred to here is the Herod that serves up John the Baptist's head on a platter. That's this guy. He is the one at Jesus' trial that, that Pilate, trying to wash his hands of the situation, sends Jesus to this Herod. And this Herod wants Jesus to do some miracles, put on a show. And when he doesn't, he tells the soldiers to mock him, to beat him, and then he sends Jesus back to Pilate. Our boy Manny here grew up with Herod the Tetrarch the man involved in the death of both John the Baptist and Jesus. That ain't a good resume. And now, he is in the inner circle of the leadership of the church at Antioch. I would bet you that one of the most consistent lies that people believe is that you're too messed up, you're too far gone, you have made too many mistakes, there is no way in this world that God would ever want to seek you, forgive you, save you, and use you. But when you come to Jesus in repentance and faith, it is no longer about how awful you have been, it is absolutely about how awesome Jesus is. And the Bible is filled with these stories. I can tell you that heart of life is filled with these stories. God is still doing this transformational stuff in the lives of people all around us every day. Man, that's good. And that ain't even the point of today's talk. Verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. For the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Now here's what we know from the story so far. God used Stephen's death. Remember that story? Faithful Stephen stands his ground. They stone him to death because he will not deny that he loves Jesus. God used Stephen's death and the persecution of the church to push them out of Jerusalem and start moving the church outward. God is saying we're, we're going to move out of Jerusalem. We're, we're going to now begin to make the circle wider. Remember the mission, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. God is now pushing them out all the way to Antioch. But now, in our story today, Acts chapter 13, God says, we're moving again. It's time to move again. I want you to move forward with me on this mission, seeking, saving. So it says in this text that God called them. It says that God sent them. Very specific. In other words, this is God's work. This is God's mission. This is God on the move. And our instruction is keep moving forward with God on his mission to seek and save. 
He is always moving forward. God is always moving to the next person and the next neighborhood and the next town and the next country. So the question might be raised, then why? Why is it so that, that more of the church isn't bold in moving forward with him? Why isn't more of the church bold in, in, in continuing to move forward as God moves forward? Throughout the years, I have observed some obstacles. I think they are a part of the reason why we don't see it. Today I want to share a few of those with you. The first one is what I would call the need for maintenance. Now, when we hear the word maintenance, normally we're thinking about like building maintenance, things that need to be repaired. And I'm talking about something bigger than that, but I'm also going to say that sometimes that very thing can actually find churches spending so much resources on their physical properties that it actually leaves little money and little time and little energy to actually be on the mission to follow God into the world to declare what he's called us to do. Sometimes building maintenance can be the obstacle, it becomes the focus. But I'm talking about something bigger than building maintenance. I'm talking about organizational maintenance. Now, come on. Anytime you have an organization, there are needs that have to be attended to. There are struggles that you got to fix. You got to improve. It's any organization that exists. You constantly have to put attention and effort toward how do we make this better. But my point today is sometimes that can happen to a point that we, again, spend so much energy it's almost like we are keeping the wheels of the organization moving on the inside, right? We're doing what we got to do to fix this wheel so that it turns, and we fix this wheel so that it turns. And so on the inside, we're trying to get all the wheels to keep moving. The problem is we put so much energy into that that the wheels on the outside aren't moving forward with God anymore. The organization keeps flowing. The organization keeps moving, but, but, the, but the actual wheels that move with God aren't going anywhere. Now, there's another obstacle that I think is attached to this. It's called the pull of consumerism. There will always be this pull in us because it is the tendency of our heart. I always want to know what can you provide more for me and what can you provide better for me? And I'm saying sometimes that's the obstacle in the church. That the question we're always wrestling with is, hey, hey, how can you provide better children's ministry for me? And how can you provide a better worship experience for me? And how can you provide better teaching for me? Now, I promise you our heart's always to get better. But I think you can tell sometimes if you ask most people why they are a part of a church, what they will usually describe is what they get from that church rather than what they can give through that church. And it's because most people view the church as though it's built for them. Let me give you one more. It's what I call a drive for perfection, a drive for perfection. There is a common business thinking, there is common business practice that goes something like this. You should perfect where you are before you move to the next. And in many times I'm saying that's, that's wise business counsel, it's wise business practice. You, you build up what you already have before you take on more. You solidify what you're already working on before you add to it. You ready for this? Not the church. Not the church. 
Now, don't misunderstand me. It doesn't mean that we don't always want to be strengthening. And I'm telling you, God continues to build and strengthen what he starts. But if you look at the pattern through the book of Acts, if you look at the pattern of a guy like Paul, Paul will step into a town and he'll start a church. There's a group of people who believe. He'll spend a little bit of time with them. And then he does what? He moves to the next. And then he moves to the next. And God keeps moving him to the next. Now, he'll circle back around. We'll get some of that as we go through Acts. He'll circle back around to that church that he was a part of starting, and he'll say, hey, we need to really put some elders in place here now. Enough time has been spent, and we can tell who needs to be elders, and he'll take another step of helping them grow. I'm just saying it's a totally different philosophy than much of the business world that says when you get your hands on something, you're a part of something, you build that thing all the way to perfection. You build it to its fullest before you take on the next. This obstacle is sneaky because it sounds smart. And it sounds like you're still moving forward, but what I have experienced is that so much of the time, this obstacle is actually just a mask for a selfless ploy that means let's build this thing better for me before we start dishing out resources to do something else. Sometimes this pride or sometimes this perfection issue is just our pride. It's like if I'm going to do something that I want to do it at a certain level and look, I'm telling you, excellence is fantastic. We should be striving for excellence, but, but excellence, man, that's defined by you doing the best you can in the time that you've been given. When God keeps moving you forward, it's time to move forward. It doesn't mean you're not still caring for, loving for, developing what's there, but you better move forward with him If you hang around churches very long, there is a term that you'll, you'll learn. Um, it's called being stretched thin. And everybody feels it at some point. It just feels like you're, you're stretched and just, just this idea of being stretched thin. And please, please hear me in what I'm about to say to you. I, I, every once in a while, I'll preach a whole sermon to some of y'all. You need to rest, Right? You've heard me do that. There are times you need to rest. You need a good pattern of rest. There, there needs to be some health in your life. So I want you to take that into context when I make this next statement. Sometimes, and I'm going to say typically, typically the church feels stretched thin when its focus is primarily maintenance, consumerism, or perfection. Typically, the church feels stretched thin when its primary focus becomes maintenance, consumerism, or perfection. You can do the very same work but depending on where you are focused, if you are focused on maintenance, this is what we got to do. If you're focused on consumerism, this is what we got to provide. If you're focused on perfection, I, I must reach this level. You will leave weary. But if you can see what you're doing, yeah, every once in a while you, you got to improve. Every once in a while you got to help make something better. But if you can see what you're already doing in light of a missional God who is saying, come on, come on with me. And, and whether it's something that you're ministering to within, within when the church gathers or whether it is something on the outside, if you can see your life a part of this missional God, you will be empowered. You will be empowered. I'm kind of passionate about this <laughs> because I, I'm going to say, especially when it comes to the perfection piece, I, I'm not sure that anything has cost us as a church more than that type of a battle in our hearts and in our action. Well, 
Paul and Barnabas are sent. They begin moving from town to town as God is moving them forward. They eventually arrive at this place called Paphos, where there is a governor, we're told in the story this week, who sent for them because he wants to hear the word of God. But there's a problem. Check it out, verse 8. But Elymas, the sorcerer, that sounds fun, right? If you're Paul, this sounds like a fun encounter. Elymas, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul, that's the, the governor, from the faith. Now, I want you to pay attention to those words, turn from, all right? That's actually one word in the Greek, okay? Turn from. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, so by the way, this is the first place we get the fact that his name has now changed. He's a new man. He also has a new name. So when we see Paul, we know we're talking about the same guy. Filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elmas and said, you're a child of the devil. Anybody ever wanted to say that to somebody? Maybe, you, anybody, maybe I should say ever said that to somebody, right? You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? See that word perverting? You remember that word turned from? Same word. Same word in the Greek. Turning from the faith, perverting the right ways of the Lord, it is the very same Greek word. The point is, in our English language, we could translate it multiple ways. We have multiple words in trying to translate what that word means. I also love the New American Standard. This is the phrase that the New American Standard uses, will you not stop making crooked the straight ways of the Lord? I like that. That's an image, that's an image I, can, I can latch on to. Will you, will, you, will you not stop making crooked the straight ways of the Lord? How, how do you make crooked the straight path of the Lord? And the answer in this story and the answer from these words is you get in the way of people coming to faith in Jesus. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to turn them from trusting Jesus. He's trying to pervert the truth of how you come to Jesus. When you get in the way of people coming to faith in him, then, then you are making crooked the straight path of the Lord. So here, here is the second lesson that I want us to get today from this chapter. Right? Not, not only do, do we keep moving forward with God on his mission, but on that mission, we keep the path straight for people to come to faith in Jesus. Keep the path straight. Now here is the underlying truth in that. How glad are you that God makes straight paths to faith in him? How cool is that? God's not trying to make the path crooked. He makes the path straight. In this particular story, <clears throat> we've got this, this in my head. God sees this governor right, in, in Paphos, and God's mission to seek and to save. At the same time, 275 miles away, God sees his people who are worshiping and fasting and seeking the mind of God, and you know what God does? Between a governor that he, that he wants to seek and to save and between this, this group of people who are seeking God's heart, he makes a straight path. He makes a straight path. How cool that we get to become a part of God's clear path of people coming to faith. Isn't it interesting that Paul and Barnabas, they have little human authority. They have no political standing. And yet they find themselves standing before the governor. How did that happen? I'll tell you how it happened. It's the same God who called them and the same God who sent them is the same God who went, boop, let's connect the path and make it straight and I'm gonna put you in front of this guy that I want to seek and save. Now, don't, don't, don't misunderstand, right? God makes the path straight. He's doing it here. He did it with Cornelius. We read that story. Connected him to who? The apostle Peter. 
God, God did it with the Ethiopian eunuch, connected him with who, right? Philip. Jesus is the clear path. That's what we celebrate. I, he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is the clear path. Nothing we read in Scripture fires up Jesus more than when people start getting in the way of people coming to faith in Jesus. You, Jesus gets angrier. You hear more passion from him when people start making the path crooked. That's why he had such harsh words for people like the Pharisees, because the Pharisees would make up extra rules. They would put those extra rules on people and made the path harder than Jesus made the path. You don't want to do that. <laughs> you, you, on this mission, as you are moving forward with God, one of the things we continually ask God, God, don't let us get in the way of this clear path that you are making for people to come to you. God, God, help us, help us not to add to in any way what you say it means to, to put, their, put faith in you. God, don't, don't allow our lives to become hypocritical. God, to where, where we're saying one thing and we're living another because we don't want to make that path crooked. We don't want people to, we want them to see clearly. Keep moving forward with God on the mission to seek and to save and keep the path straight for people to come to faith in Jesus. The first one is the charge. The second one is the warning. And before we're finished here, I want to read one more part because it's the encouragement. I'm just going to read it to you, and I think you'll start to figure out what the point is. Let's start with verse 16. Paul and the crowd, Paul and the crew have now moved on. They, they've moved to more towns, more towns, to where suddenly, what I'm about to read, Paul is sharing in a synagogue one day. As far as scripture goes, this is the first sermon recorded Paul speaking. Now, I'm not saying it's his first. I'm saying it's the first one we get. Check this out. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, fellow Israelites, and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper. Who did? Who made the people prosper? God did. They prospered, but who made? God did. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. They got out of the country, no longer slaves, but how did they do that? He led them out. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as, an, as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel, uh, the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus as he has promised. Here's the last keep that I want to give you today. It is the encouragement as you walk out this mission, as you seek to keep the path straight, it is to keep recognizing and communicating how God is working in everything. That's what Paul chooses to do here. As he's telling the story, he's making it clear God is the main factor in every piece of this story. Now, come on, we are always telling stories. Today, you're gonna tell more stories than you realize. You're, you're gonna think they're not important stories, but you'll just be having conversations and here's what we did, here's what happened. You're gonna tell stories. Our problem is we don't often connect or speak of God in those stories. 
which really leaves us on a very superficial level of life. Now, when I say the word superficial, like how do we tend to use that that term? We'll use that term of somebody who only cares about their what? Their appearance, right? Somebody who only cares about how they look on the what? On the outside. It's a surface word. Superficial is about what's going on on the surface. What I'm saying is when we tell stories of life, but we don't connect God to those stories, we are operating on a very superficial level of life because the reality is God is behind every single one of those stories. Paul knows that God is the main factor in everything. Everything has to do with God. Everything gets its meaning from him. Say everything? Yes. So a quick word to the kids who now have been in school for perhaps a couple of weeks, two weeks, three weeks. Some of you, you think it's already been six months. It's just a couple of weeks. And here's the question. Why, why should I worry about school? Right? Why should I worry about school? Like, why, why do I need to learn English? I already kind of know how to talk, Right? Why do I need to worry about that stuff? Here's one answer. One answer that that we want to give back to try to accomplish our goal is, well, I mean, come on, you want to learn it because because this is going to help you succeed better in life. I mean, if you learn proper English and how to communicate, right, you're going to better be able to to succeed in life, you're, you, you, in turn, you're, you're going to better be able to impact the community that you live in. Besides that, you're, you're going to build your own self-esteem as, as you learn. And, and then, I mean, ultimately, you, you can make more money too. And I'm saying, as good of answers as all those are, that's very Superficial. Because for those of us who know the God that we're talking about today, the true answer involves something like this. You should care about learning and studying and knowledge and English because you belong to the God, the creator of this universe, who is the master communicator. And he has made you in his image and given you the greatest information that the world has ever known. What you are called to communicate makes an eternal difference, right? Not not just a difference now in the lives of people, but you communicating. It it makes a difference in in people's lives for all of eternity. And, and, And when you learn, as God gives you opportunity, right, then, then you have the opportunity to share and the opportunity to love and a community is built and trust is built. There is a bigger reason behind it all. When we recognize and communicate how God is working in everything, for one, it benefits us. It benefits us because we're recognizing his presence and God's presence transforms my heart and my life. When I recognize he's with me, I'm different than when I don't. But it also benefits others because it testifies to God's greatness. I'm not speaking about God in my story so that I look super spiritual. Don't do that. I'm speaking of God in the story because I truly believe that he is the biggest factor in every story. I'm going to share this with you. We're going to wrap this up. I just feel like I need to remind you today. COVID is not the main factor in our lives right now. It's not. Don't twist my words because I know it's big and it's real. People are sick and people die. 
It requires that we have information and responsibility on how we operate in this season. But the point I'm making today is for most of you, you already know what that is. You you know that information, you, you understand that responsibility, and I'm simply reminding us today, as big as that feels, God is actually the biggest factor in our lives as we walk through this right now. It's God. But some of you can't see him because you're not looking at him. And the reason you can't see him is because, for example, every news feed you get is superficial. It's giving you info, and even if that info is true, it's superficial because it's not connected to God. Nothing wrong with getting information. You should get it. Some of you need to keep searching some of that. But realize it's superficial if it is not connected to the God who is behind everything. He is at work around us right now in this fight with COVID. You seeing and communicating that is going to determine whether you come out the other side weary or empowered. This week, we have been flooded with 9-11 memories. I have found myself emotional at times, remembering. Somebody said to me this week, remember when our country cared about one another? Remember when it seemed like our country cared about one another? One of the things I saw sort of a microcosm event of what I'm talking about with 9-11. 10 days after the event, baseball returned. And as often the case with our country, sports will serve a part of processing. People come together, they process. 10 days after 9-11, baseball returned. And the first place it returned was New York. The Atlanta Braves visited the New York Mets. Obviously, it was a moment that a country leaned in and first opportunities for people to process, continue to grieve together, but something happened at that event. I was reminded this week, the Atlanta Braves and the New York Mets embraced. I don't mean figuratively. Like I saw the video again this week, the Atlanta Braves and the New York Mets hugged on the field before the first pitch was thrown and it wasn't scripted. Everybody that experienced it said nobody, nobody said, hey, do this. No, nobody made a request. Let's, let's put on a, a demonstration of unity. Nobody said do it. Grown men, right? Powerful athletes, right? All the, the money that you could imagine, they hug each other before the first pitch is thrown. And when I saw that, it's like, that is the microcosm of what happens when you realize there is a bigger enemy that threatens you both. And today I'm simply saying, come on church, that ought to be the consistent view of our lives. We have an enemy, he is bigger than COVID. This enemy not just destroys the body, but he seeks to destroy the body and the soul. He uses fear to divide, and that division leads to distrust, and that distrust makes people mean, even in the church. But what we celebrate today is not just the truth that we have an enemy that is common to us all, 
but we have a savior who is greater than our enemy. He is always greater than our enemy. My charge today, start fighting forward with this savior on a mission to seek and to save. He wins. God, today, I ask for understanding and healing even in your church. Today, I ask, God, that out of what we have been reminded of in the scripture today, what we see of the early church God, this is still the picture of you on the move. You are a God right now, right now in our culture, where it feels like the biggest factor is COVID. The truth is the biggest factor is you are still the God on a mission to seek and to save. And God, I'm asking that you would just empower your people that our primary passion might be God, to love, to serve, and with our voice to declare how great you are. God, our mission is something bigger than even trying to keep people alive. Yeah, we want to see that. We, we pray for that. God, help us to act in right ways for that. But God, our mission is bigger than that. We want to see people know life forever and ever with you. God, today, would you realign how we see the world because you realign how we see you. God, may your church not ever be divided. May your church be one in you. Dear God, today, empower your people to move forward again on mission with you, the God who seeks and saves. In the name of Jesus, I thank you today. Amen.